You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. At FMCC, we like to say that we love God, love others, and make disciples, and that we want to carry the, the word of God to every man, woman, and child. And that's what you see on stage this morning. We get the opportunity to teach our children how beautiful and valuable it is to gather together with the church's family. This morning, we have a guest speaker. Mr. Russ Johnson is in the house. Come on up here. You can give him a, you can give him a hand. Our pastor and his family, Bill, Bill and Lauren and the girls, they're on a two-week hiatus. So as you remember, pray for them that the Lord would give them refreshment, that he would rejuvenate them and recharge them and give them everything that they need. But this morning, Russ, we are excited to hear from you. We're thankful that you're here to cover, and uh, we know you're going to crush it. So thank you, man. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. I don't know about that crushing thing, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll do my best. Oh, man, uh, Revelation chapter 3, right? Is that where we are? Those were the words that I heard read, and I was like, that's not the text that Bill gave me. So I have a different sermon for you. And I'm totally kidding, by the way. Um, my wife gives me a hard time. She's like, honey, when you talk... You're like always in second gear and no one knows that you're playing. They think you're being serious. And anyhow, I, I have to run with that sometimes. All this said, uh, Revelation chapter three is the very first sermon that I ever preached on a stage within a church community setting. It happened at the first church that I went to work for in Hendersonville, North Carolina, if you guys know where that might be. And I was a young dude with a wife and a baby. I worked all day in a machine shop and went to Bible college at night and mowed grass on the side to pay bills. And uh, through a season of working at this church, sort of like on a volunteer base, he said, hey, we're going to go ahead and throw you in the mix. You're up. Revelation chapter 3, Church of Laodicea. And I honestly, if I'm being honest with you, I wish that I would have heard those words from him and been like, oh, yeah, man, let me take this serious or, whoa, man, that's a heavy one. But instead, I was like chomping at the bit. I was like, yes, finally, I'm going to get to stand before this congregation and get everybody aligned with what needs to be. Help us all straighten up and fly right. Because when you read this passage at first glance, if you're like me, you kind of have this like, whoa, wait a second. Um, this, this, this isn't the, the sweet Jesus of orphans and, and lambs here, right? This, this sounds like something else. This sounds like, the, this sounds like the God that I always feared was hiding behind the curtain. Anybody in here ever felt like that? You can read the scriptures, you sort of get this one idea of God, but then there's this other image that seems to always creep in. And maybe if it's not there, it's from the people that are in and around you who are constantly reminding you, hey, he's watching. You know, it's almost like he's like a better version of Santa Claus, you know? That's been my story. And um, the truth is, backing up and looking at my notes from that first sermon, 20, what was that? Man, 24 years ago. I'm starting to feel old right now. I was an eight-year-old boy. <laughs> Just kidding. But uh, 24 years ago. Looking at those notes, I found myself reading over that and going, man, is there any wonder why a misreading or a misunderstanding of this passage has led to leagues of burnout 
in droves of people saying goodbye to the faith altogether. Because there's actually really, really good news about a really good Papa right here in this text. The gracious God that we all long for, the one that we know we need, the one that we don't have to fear, he's right here. If we'll just let it say what it's saying. So, time's precious. Let's get into it. You guys ready? All right. Jesus says, I wish you were cold or what? Or hot. The traditional view has been that the Laodiceans were being criticized for their lack of zeal. That's definitely how I preached it. Being lukewarm, that's the one you really need to, you know, that's the one you got to watch out for. I'd rather you be fired up for me or just not even a believer who doesn't want anything to do with me. Just don't be that middle of the ground lazy Christian. That was, that's sort of this idea, like this middle, idle, middle of the road kind of understanding. But a more ancient interpretation of this actual text has suggested that this is a metaphor that has been drawn from the water supply, check this out, of the very city that you're reading about in your Bible. This was a real place, real people, community, just like this, that Jesus, right, is talking to through John in this passage. So in this city, again, there, there's... There's a metaphor of a water supply here that's in contrast to the hot springs there and the cold, okay? It's a contrast. The archaeology, I'm reading, by the way, because I'm not this smart. I did my research. The archaeology shows that Laodicea had an, had, had an aqueduct that carried water from mineral springs, check this out, hot mineral springs, some five miles south, which should have been, I love this, tepid. It's carrying water to the city, which would have been tepid before entering the city. So the imagery of the Laodicean aqueduct suggests not that hot is good and cold is bad, but that both hot and cold water are useful. Hear me when I say that, useful. Whereas lukewarm water, guess what? It's not. It's just not. As the famous Bear Grylls has shown us, do not drink stagnant water. How many times have you seen that in a show? Or if you're like me and you're a Florida kid who grew up fishing retention ponds, as my dad would say, don't drink the water, son, and stop bringing home those fish. I don't care how big they are. We ain't eating them. <laughs> you know? True story. It breeds bacteria, and it will lead to dehydration and death if you drink this. This is what Jesus is getting at here, okay? It's what he's showing them. In short, there's no life in stagnant water, only death, okay? So what do we do? What do you do? You spit it out. You spit it out. Like Jesus said in verse 16. And please hear me when I say this, because this is something I wish I'd have said 24 years ago. You spit it out, not because it isn't desired, but because it's dead. You spit it out, not because it's not desired, but because it's dead. It's lifeless. So Jesus tells them, you say I'm rich and I've prospered and I need nothing, but really you were poor, blind, and what's he say? Naked, right there in verse 17 and 18. These words, they mark an ironic like overconfidence in their spiritual wealth, okay? That's, that's kind of what he's showing here. In short, they have become people who have placed their sense of identity and security in what they have and in what they do. Now, I know that's very foreign to the world that we live in right now. I know we can't even begin to grasp the idea that we would put our identity and our sense of security in what we have and in what we do. You can laugh. 
But humanity, right, is the same. It's the same old story. So just like in our context today, that's what Jesus is dealing with here. In their imagined independent status, they have filed bankruptcy. And they're so blind, they don't even know it. Think about that. They're so blind, they don't even know it. So drawing on the image of their perceived wealth, Jesus holds up a mirror for the Laodiceans in the same way that I feel like he did with the religious crowd in that famous Sermon on the Mount passage that we look at in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Sometimes we hold that up. It's like, yeah, this is the blueprint for the kingdom. This is the framework that we need to live by. This is what we really need to get after. We're not realizing that Jesus is dealing with a very, very religious crowd that has placed their sense of identity and security in what they do. Sound familiar? And to help them see their blindness, to help them see this crowd, to help this crowd that's holding up the law of God and going, this is what's needed to live in union with God. This is possible if we could just get it together. If we could just not be lukewarm, we'll make it. And it's to this crowd in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is like, okay, guys, I'll meet you where you are. Let's go ahead and get started. Anger. You think, you know what? I haven't committed murder. I haven't physically murdered anyone, so I'm good to go when it comes to this. And Jesus is like, really? Have you ever even hated your brother in your heart secretly? Because if so, that idea of righteousness that you think you have and can obtain, guess what? You're not doing too well, are you? Do you know what that means, that if you've hated someone, even in your heart, you're guilty of this? Do you know what that means? That means every single person who drives in Florida is going to hell. That's what that means. Right? Next point. He goes, okay, really quick, let's just keep it going. Lust. You say, hey, I've never physically committed adultery, as in I've been with someone outside of my spouse while married. I'm good to go here. And he's like, really? Have you ever just lusted for someone in your heart? Like just even thought about it for a second when they walked by? And where did that begin? Did it begin when you smelt their perfume? Is that when, the, is that when you broke the law? Or is it maybe when you thought about it for one second? Or does it have to be a half a second? My point is he's driving them somewhere. He even goes on to show them the absurdity of this and begins to, to offer solutions of self-mutilation. Hey, real quick, just so we're clear, if you're struggling with this, it'd be better for you to cut off your hand and go to hell. It'd be better for you to pluck out your eye, too. Follow that logic for just a moment. If you cut off your hand, what do you have left? Another hand. If you pluck out your eye, what do you have left? Another eye. Let's say you pluck out both and cut off both. Do you not have a memory you could still operate off of? See where he's going? Right after this, what's he say? Hey, just so we're clear, be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect. Perfect? Yeah, you know, like that guy that thought he, the law was something that was needed, impossible to live in union with God and thought that he kept it. And what did Jesus tell him to do? Go sell what? Did he say some things? Did he say most things? Or did he say go sell everything? What I'm getting at is when I'm looking at this passage and what Jesus is dealing with with the Laodiceans, it reminds me of what the same thing that he does in the Sermon on the Mount. He creates, out of love, he creates a crisis of capacity for us. He creates a crisis of capacity. 
you think this is what's needed. You think it's possible. You think there's a righteousness that you need of your own. Let me save you from the propensity of that endless exhaustion. You need something beyond you. And out of love, he drives us to this very reality. He drives us there. In verse 18, this is what Jesus says back in Revelation 3. So we're clear, you guys are broke. That's what he tells them. You're broke. And you need to buy gold from me. For I alone can give you value, clothe you, and make you see. Those whom I love, and I love this, I rebuke. What's he say there? Those who I what? Those who I love. Those who I love, I bring a crisis of capacity to, to shake them to their core so they can see there's something bigger here, something far more vast that you need than what you think you could ever bring to the table. I'm trying to save you from the endless exhaustion of thinking you can run in this, achieve this, keep this, protect this, preserve this, protect this. He's driving them there out of love. When I look back at my notes 24 years ago, you know what word I missed in that whole sermon? Yeah, love. The fact that it's out of love that I rebuke. And so what's he telling them to do? So repent, verse 19, repent. In the Greek, the word comes from, it's metanoia. It means to change one's mind. It does not mean to get it together. It does not mean to prove that you have it together. All the getting it together is good and beautiful, but it's above your pay grade and mine. The one thing you and I can do is what? Repent. To change our minds about what this God is like and what he's done and who we are in him because of what he's like and what he's done. And so Jesus tells them, here I am, the one who loves you. Change your mind, guys. You think you're bringing something to the table. You're not. And I love this. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Here I am, standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. I love that. And they with me. I love that. Repent and get it together. No. What's he say? Repent. Change your mind. And open the door by faith. Say, you're God. I'm not. Somebody asked me the other day, Russ, as you get older in the faith, as you continue to live and serve in ministry, what's, what's like one aha conclusion that you've, that you've gained about humanity, God, and I, I think they were expecting something complex, and if I'm being honest with you, I selfishly, arrogantly, secretly, well, it wasn't secret till now, <laughs> um, wanted to offer something complex, but the only thing I could come up with is, uh, the older I get, the more convinced I am that it's Jesus or bust. It's just Jesus or bust, guys. And thankfully, according to Jesus, that's all it never needed to be. Because that's what a loving dad does. The whole act, the whole act that we see here, it's centered on love for a community of blind people who need to change their mind about God 
so they can enjoy the fellowship they were made for. That's what it is. To see, I feel like, is their greatest need. The word see, I feel like, is where the whole conversation hinges in this text. The problem facing the Laodiceans and humanity at large is not our disobedience or brokenness or wretchedness, as some would say. I think the real problem is much deeper. I'm not saying that that's not a problem. I'm saying the real problem is much deeper and much more devastating than that. The problem is that we believe the wrong things about God, and as such, we alienate ourselves from the very essence of life itself. In fact, you could go as far as saying that our perspective of our benevolent maker is fundamentally flawed, and from this distortion flows everything we have ever done. If you want to go throughout the history of the world, you can start at every single problem, and I promise you, if you track it, if you track it, collectively, personally, socially, track it. In every case, keep going, keep going, keep going. Well, why why they do this? I know, because this. Okay, well, why that? Well, because of how this thing happened. Well, how did that happen? Well, because of this. Well, why did that happen? Keep going, keep going. And when you get to the root, you know what you'll find? A completely flawed understanding of what our God is like. It's a thousand and oh, I promise you. Thousand and oh. In the words that in the words of the man that C.S. Lewis respected most, the man that C.S. called his master, okay, his master, his teacher, said this: the refusal to look up to God as our Father is the one central wrong in the whole human affair. Whatever serves to clear any difficulty out of the way of the human recognition of the Father will more or less, and I love this, undermine every difficulty in life. With Adam and Eve, with Adam and Eve, we, all humanity, distrust the one who named us, the one who made us, our Father. And this distrust, again, is at the root of all personal and social breakdown. Helping us understand how this dismantling vision came into being, like how did this happen? Why does this keep happening? I feel like Dr. Kruger probably captured it best. And I'm just going to read this because he said it better than I ever will. Adam and Eve, eating the fruit itself, we all know the story, was the first fruit. I love this. The first fruit. The first response to the great anxiety that swept into their hearts when they believed the lie. The serpent convinced them that God was holding out on them, that he was not giving them everything that they should have, and that they were not yet everything that they could be. He convinced them that they were missing out. Anxiety had become the matrix of human existence. It's through observing this that we learn the deepest core problem of the fall is that Adam's pain inevitably altered the way he saw God. And so he hid in fear and dread of being exposed for who he really was. Anybody ever been there other than me and Adam? All right, like seven of us? Awesome. Kruger goes on and says this, now there's a great ditch between who God actually is and who Adam believes God is. His heart will be misunderstood. His every word and act and intention will be translated through the wrong-headedness of human anxiety and projection. Mm. 
Seeing the endless destruction of this wrongheadedness, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. That's not what we see happening in Revelation 3. He's not changing God's mind about us. He came to change our minds about God. We didn't need someone to heal our disobedience to fix it. We needed someone to heal our distrust and our distorted vision from which all that flows from. Jesus knows that the only way to ever live in the freedom that's found in dependence on God is to see what he's actually like. The only way you're ever going to admit your bankruptcy, Laodicea, is to see what my dad's actually like. Because it's in that that you see what you're really like. And instead of hiding in the shame of that, you get to look at him and say, Dad, I'm here. I'm here. Just as I am. That would be the opening the door that Jesus speaks about. That would be the lifelong fellowship at the table with the very God that you were made to live in table fellowship with. That's the whole reason we're here. <laughs> it's such a beautiful, beautiful picture. To give you an example of this breakdown that I'm talking about, and I thought about this, looking at my youngest son, looking at all my kids, but the easiest one is my youngest. My kids are 24, 21, and six. It's okay to laugh. <laughs> 24, 21, and six. My, some people call him, um, we called him Mr. Oops in the beginning, and then my wife, she shops at Amazon, so she calls him our add-on. But, uh, yeah, we turned 40 and decided to start over. Um, well, we didn't decide. We just started over. <laughs> and it's been a joy. But thinking about this, like if my, if my six-year-old son, Eli, does not see me for who I am in his, as his father, who loves him, then he will not see himself as my child who came from me and will always be the supreme object of my affections. Knowing that Eli could be terrified of me for absolutely no reason that I've ever given him would tear me up inside. Not to mention, lead to a lifetime of anxiety for Eli. But sadly, that seems to be the story of the Laodiceans, people throughout the scriptures, guys, ladies, probably for a lot of us today. Under the popular delusion that God is distant and disappointed, we resurrect religion constantly. A religion that Jesus buried to somehow obtain and maintain a union with God that we could never bring about. Every person who went to Jesus with what must I do was met with the same answer. With humans, this union you're looking for is impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. It was never on you to bring this about. Never. Over my experience within the church world, I find that we kind of operate in two camps from this delusional idea that we have of God. I feel like I'm pretty well versed in them, not because of I've been on the receiving end, but if I am confessing before you, I have been on the distribution side of this equation. The two camps seem to be should and shame. Out of this delusional understanding of God that causes us to easily misread Scripture, 
we have this idea that the law is good, it's right, it's what's needed, and it's possible. And so we live in this forever camp of shoulds. Every, every Sunday, you get three to five points of what you should be doing and how to do it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And then on the other side is what I call the shame camp. It's the idea that, no, you never could keep this. It was never the point. But you should feel wretched constantly. And the more wretched you feel, and the more wretched you remind each other of how we really are, the more grace will sound great and we can rejoice in it. And so it, the, keeping the shoulds are like the merit badge that we put on, they're the sense of belonging we have, or constantly feeling shame, right, is the merit badge and how we get our sense of belonging. If I had a dollar, if every time I spoke at a church where I got to walk up to people and say, how are you doing? Uh, better than I should be, brother. I'm just dirt, maggot. I'm like, you know what? You fill in the blank. But God's good. God, he's, he's good. You heard me on that, right? I'm just a maggot, but you're good. And I'm like, bro, if my six-year-old son, Eli, responded that way, hey, Eli, how's your relationship with your dad? Oh, I'm just a maggot, but let me tell you about him. That would crush me. It's not true. It's not true. The scandal of God's love lives in the middle, guys. The scandal of God's love lives in the middle of the shoulds and the shame. It's a love that speaks to us and says, I didn't ask for either one of these, ever. That endless echo chamber of guilt, yeah, that system, never my plan. And so we see in the scriptures that Jesus, this, this image of the invisible God says, come to me. <laughs> come to me, and I will help you see. Repent. Change your mind. Open the door for crying out loud. You're trying so hard to make it to the dance that you think lies out there that you're missing the very dance that you live in because of everything I've already done. See this. See who you are in this. This is the life of faith. This is the freedom that Jesus speaks about. And just to give you a couple of quick verses in my closing here, just to see what I'm talking about, here's one of my favorites that I wish I would have brought to that message 24 years ago. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul says that this God that often we have feared and ran from, the one that we thought was hiding behind that curtain, yeah, says that he saved us and called us to a holy life. Yeah, I know, I know. Are you ready for this? Not because, he says, of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace, and I love this, given us in Christ Jesus, Here's my favorite part. Before the beginning of time. <gasps> what? <laughs> Say that again? No, 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 no. It's when, I, it's when I did these things that all that, no. No. A grace was given before the beginning of time. And this is what he goes on and says. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death, that's past tense, guys, who has destroyed death and has brought life, past tense, 
and or malady, I'm sorry, Im, yep, immortality, to light through the gospel. Like an iceberg poking up through the water surface, Jesus revealed what has always been true about God and us from the beginning. About God and us from the beginning. John the baptizer, I love this, says that out of his fullness, we have all received grace and place of grace already, what? Given. For the law was given through Moses. Amen. It's not gone anywhere. But grace and truth, yeah, that came through Christ Jesus. That's your reality. That's my reality. Already given. The phrase there literally means grace on top of grace. Yeah, I know, but, but, when, but when I struggle to believe and I, and I walk off in things that are, that, are, that are harming me, yeah, out of love he comes to you. And, and well, yeah, but what does he do? Well, it's grace. Yeah, but like what's on top of that? Grace. Yeah, but what's on top of that? Grace. I can keep going here. That's what it says. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Jesus tells us, not only, Paul tells us, not only that, he's, that this Jesus that, that's speaking to us in this Revelation 3, not only is he the creator and sustainer of all things, he's the one who reconciled all things and made peace by the blood of his cross. Peace. So while he's talking to the Laodiceans, he's coming to them out of love to help them see that they are blind and bankrupt to a righteousness that they think they have of their own. See this. But he's coming with a peace, a peace that's already been poured out, a peace that surpasses understanding, the scriptures tell us. Man, I love that. Love that. Jesus didn't come to make us worthy or worth it. Instead, Jesus came to help us see God's love doesn't work at all how we thought to reveal to us that God's insistence on including us in his life is constant and conditional. Our badness isn't keeping us from our union with God because it has already been bested in Christ and forgiven as he stated. It's our blindness. It's not our badness. It's our blindness that's keeping us from trusting in the God who loves us, lives in us, and has already forgiven us. Already. Already forgiven us. Paul talked in Ephesians 4 about this alienation that we live in, and he said they live in this alienation not because God's not there and present and knocking on the door. <laughs> they live in alienation because of the ignorance that's in them. They're alienated because they're ignorant, he says. They're ignorant of reality. But this ignorance is not because they've never heard. The ignorance, he goes on and says, is because of their hard-heartedness. Their refusal to free fall into the grace the same way Jesus did. You know that is the life of faith, right? You know freedom isn't flying, it's actually falling. This is the life of dependence. This is freedom. This is the union that we were created to live and to walk in. It's not our goodness or badness that keeps us in the dark. It's just not. It's our blindness. But here's the good news. Are you ready for this? Not that I ever had a lot of good news, but here's like the end of the good news. Not really the end of it, but the end of my standing up here and giving you good news. The darkness has not overcome the light, Jesus says. The darkness has not overcome the light. There was never a time when God was losing the battle. 
There was never a time where you were hanging in the balance. There's only ever been the possibility for you and I, just like the Laodiceans, to see the serpents, to see God with the serpent's eyes and believe his lies. Or, or, to see God with Jesus' eyes and trust the Father's truth. That's the life before us. That's the journey. So please hear me when I say you are free to stop pretending that there's a union with God that you need to pursue or preserve or perfect with your religious devotion. The God that many of us have secretly feared that we thought was hiding behind that curtain in Revelation 3, yeah, that's not him. The one that Jesus showed us is the one who's standing there and saying, out of love, I'm knocking on the door because I'm just that crazy about you. And all I'm asking is for you to change your mind so you can live in the union that you were made for. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. Come to me and I will give you rest from this delusion that is killing you. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we are grateful for your words. We are thankful, Lord, for a place to be able to hit a pause button in our weeks and come together and listen to these words, to sing these songs, to connect with each other. But God, I just want to lift up this congregation. I don't know all the people here. I don't know all their stories, but I rest in the fact that you do. And so, Lord, I just pray that for those who are struggling with that secret fear, that you would just help them put it to rest, that today would be a moment where they could begin to see you for who you are, and they could begin to see themselves in you because of what you've done. And, Lord, I even pray for those who have been kicking the tires of what you claim about yourself and us and life. I pray that they would hear your voice. Not my voice, not what the endless voices that people are saying around them, but Jesus, I pray they would hear your voice and by faith begin to eat with you. In Jesus' name, amen.